Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I recently sat down to talk with Tim Brooke about his recent book, The Troubled Empire, China in the Yuan and Ming Dynasties, that came out with the Belknap Press of Harvard University Press in 2010. Now, for those who may not be familiar with this book, this is part of a series that Tim edits for the press of books that kind of function on at least two levels. And certainly, The Troubled Empire is a great example of that. Now, these are books that are both useful as pedagogical resources um, in terms of lecture prep and also as material that you can assign to advanced students or even sort of um, upper level undergraduates um, that will introduce them to um, the different dynasties of Chinese history. At the same time, um, these books, and uh, this is epitomized by Tim's book, also occasionally attempt to really reconceptualize what the uh, history of the particular dynastic period they are treating looks like. Now, Tim's book is very much um, trying to do that and does that very productively. And our conversation um, was a lot of fun. So this is um, a book that's very useful, not just as a teaching resource, but also um, as a way to I think, try to rethink what it looks like to do the history of the Yuan and Ming and their relationship. We had a great time talking, and I hope you enjoy. Hi, Tim. Hi, Carla. We're here today to talk with Tim Brooke about his recent book, The Troubled Empire, China in the Yuan and Ming Dynasties. And we're actually very lucky here to have Tim at UBC. Tim and I are colleagues, and so we decided we'd take this opportunity to actually talk face-to-face and not do this over Skype. So this is a pleasure to be in the same room. It's the first time I've actually had a chance to do that in this series. Now, this is a book we'll talk about today that rewards the reader on many levels. So it does provide a really excellent introduction to Yuan and Ming history. It's not just a dry textbook. The Troubled Empire, at least from my perspective as a reader, was very clearly the product of what I think was a very productive reconceptualization of many contra- many central concepts in Chinese history, and it's given me a lot of food for thought. So thank you very much um, for talking with us. Today. Thank you. So, Tim, could you start us off a little bit by saying just a little bit about how you came to the study of China in the first place? Well, I came to the study of China a long time ago, so this could go on at great length, but I'll I'll try and keep it short. Um, The summer of 1971, I'd finished second-year university, and I was traveling in Europe, and I kept bumping into people who were interested in Zen Buddhism, which was all the rage in 1971, for those of you out there who are my age will all remember this. And um, I I became increasingly intrigued. So when I went back to the University of Toronto for my third year, I thought I'd take a course in Zen Buddhism, and there wasn't one. But there was a course in Chinese Buddhism, taught by Leonard Priestley, who is one of the most outstanding teachers I've ever met. He was wonderful. And it was his course in Chinese Buddhism that turned me on to the study of China. The course was so successful that I realized I couldn't grapple with Chinese Buddhism without understanding the language of the concepts. And so that meant I had to learn Chinese. Um, I gave up after a couple of weeks. It was hideously difficult. Uh, But I went and did a a, a summer intensive course the following following year. And so that worked. And then then it was uh, no looking back. In fact, in my final year, I then asked my English professor whether she would write me a 
recommendation to go into English literature at the graduate level. And she said, absolutely not. You're doing this Chinese stuff. Go off and do that. Don't do some more boring English literature. So I, so I went to my registrar the next day, tore up all of my uh, courses, and, and went into Chinese full-time. It meant I took an extra year before I could actually finish my degree. And I had the good fortune. This was 1974 when I finished. And that was the year in which the first Canadian student group went to China on a student exchange with China. So um, the first one actually left in the fall of 73, and then I got on the one going in the fall of 74 and spent two years in China. And uh, two fascinating, frustrating, and utterly formative years, both, both just in terms of getting to see what China was like before the Cultural Revolution was at an end. Um, and also kind of um, helping me to decide what I wanted to study. And in my, my second year in China, I was at Fudan University under Li Qingjia, who's now passed away. Um, and we studied, um, I studied Chinese literature, but he was very much interested in writings not by um, people that you think of as literary types, but as 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 uh, officials and activists and so forth. So we read Hai Rei and Wang Fuzhi and all those great late Ming thinkers. And then that that's what sent me to the Ming Dynasty. It was working with Li Qingjian at Fudan because I was going to uh, I was going to work on the post Han formation of the Buddhist and Taoist churches. That's what I was going to do when I applied to graduate school. But by the time I got there, I said, forget that. I'm, it's the Ming. That's what's exciting. And, uh, and although I've, I've taken uh, a few holidays from the Ming dynasty, that's basically where my heart and my mind are, are focused. It's so interesting in the course of these interviews how many people cite a really formative teacher or a, a very influential teacher as being formative in their decision mm -hmm. to study Chinese. I had, I had two more. While I was a student in China, I knew I was going to Harvard. I'd already been accepted. Um, and while I was there, I got into correspondence with Holmes Welch, who was just was a dear and wonderful and um, troubled and brilliant person. And he, he befriended me. He wasn't my professor. He became my friend. And he guided me in my first couple of years just as a a kind of a, a model for someone who cares about what he does and thinks carefully about what he does. So um, I feel I owe a great... He committed suicide when I was doing research in Japan, and it was a, a sad moment because he was troubled, but he was wonderful. And I, I regretted that I wasn't able to sort of continue our, continue our friendship. And then, uh, so he was the, I guess he was the other formative influence on me. And that, if anything, helped me. I was interested in the late Ming, and then I, I was fumbling around for a dissertation topic, and I got interested in Buddhist monasteries, largely because of Holmes Welch. And he shared with me his files, and it was, uh, that was a wonderful experience. So, so it's curious that the two teachers I've mentioned are teachers in Chinese Buddhism, and those are the ones who who led me into the field. And it's not really my part of the field anymore, but it's what drew me to the thoughts and the lives that people live around those thoughts um, that, uh, in the Ming Dynasty. 
Well, that's very much a theme in the book that we're talking about today. And so as a way, this is a great segue to talk about that. Now, this, um, The Troubled Empire is actually one book in a series of books that are put out by the Belknap Press of Harvard University. Um, can you talk a little bit about the broader series and the work that this series is meant to do? The series was intended to make available uh, the most recent research on Imperial China, but to pitch it at a level that um, a uh, well, maybe second, third year undergraduate would would uh, would find accessible and interesting, and also perhaps as well to to try and reach broader readers. Um, all that existed up before this were really single-volume histories of imperial China, which were usually very fat and very full of facts and um, and would cause serious damage if thrown out of the second story window. Um, or they were, it was the Cambridge History of China, which individually will cause damage when each is thrown out of a second story window. Um, the Cambridge History of China is wonderful for graduate students. You get, you get all all of these sort of states of the field that are laid out sometimes unconsciously by the, the authors who are writing them because it's the, uh, the, the series is rather dated now. But um, there was nothing in between, and nothing in between this sort of this, this all imperial history in one book versus these individual volumes. So um, I originally thought a series would be maybe four volumes. Then we expanded it to five. Uh, the Qin Han make a perfect set. Um, I wanted to do the Yuan and Ming. I didn't want to do the Qing, so I knew I needed Qing. And then let, that left the part between, you know, before the Yuan and after the Han. And initially then that was going to be two volumes. There would be a sort of northern-southern dynasties to the Tang and then a Tang Song volume. But as Mark Lewis wrote his... Northern and Southern Dynasties volumes, and Dieter Kuhn wrote his Song volume, I discovered that we'd left the Tang out. So, <laughs> so we had to go for five to six volumes, and we created a Tang volume, and, and Mark very, very kindly, and he felt, I think, against his better judgment, stepped in to do a Tang volume because he doesn't consider himself a Tang historian. The difficulty, though, was finding authors for these volumes. Um, Mark Lewis is a very organized um, scholar and a very uh, systematic lecturer, and so he, in a sense, had a he had the the three volumes that he ended up writing for the first half of the series were all there in his in his uh, lecture design, so it wasn't too difficult for him, and he was doing his lectures exactly what I wanted to do, which is to have the most current research, um, but presented in a way that doesn't leave you sort of swimming in minor detail. And I thought Mark managed to do that quite well. Um, when we realized we needed a Tong volume, I asked around, and um, the Tong field over the last decade has been a little quiet, uh, perhaps a bit stronger in Europe. Um, I already had one uh, German author, Dieter Kuhn, writing the Song volume, um, and uh, Dieter's a wonderful writer, but um, you need to you, this has to read as though it were you know, in fluent English. So I couldn't find a, an author for the Tong volume, and so Mark nicely stepped in for that. Um, for the Qing volume, Bill wrote, it just seemed to be the perfect person to write it, because Bill has written 
both on very particular issues. Very, he's also written very broadly, and he knows how to turn a phrase quite nicely. And I think I asked him, you know, these these are, it's a hard assignment in a way because it's asking you to. You worked on a field for many years, and then you're asked, okay, step back, and in 300-odd pages, give me your account of it all. And you have to be at a certain stage in your career, I think, before you're willing to do this. Um, so I, I think I just asked Bill at the right moment, and he thought, yes, this is what I want to do. I want to, I want to do the big picture of the Qing Dynasty. So that was easy. And originally, I just thought I wanted to do the Ming. Um, and if Dieter had insisted on doing the Song and the Yuan together, I probably would have said, oh, okay, you could have the Yuan dynasty. But the more I thought about it, and I'm not a specialist in the Yuan, and I happily will admit that the portion on the Yuan dynasty is the weakest portion of the book. This is not my field at all. But the more I thought about the Yuan and Ming together, the more I saw them as belonging together. And this was kind of a disruption in my own well, not exactly. I mean, we, we've had there's excellent scholarship explaining how the early Ming comes out of the Yuan Dynasty. So there's nothing new there. But when I was a student, and I think through my career, we've had a tendency to think of the Ming and the Qing as somehow a unity. And the more I, the more I'm puzzled over this, the more I saw the Ming and the Qing just drifting off in, into different spaces. And that the Yuan origins of the Ming were so important. Well, the Yuan break with, from the Song, the break between the Song and the Yuan was just formative, fundamental, and probably the most important, the most significant break in the entirety of Chinese history. So I thought, okay, I've got to go in with the Mongols and start the story there. And as I say, I'm, it's a little bit out of my, out of my, uh, the zone of comfort for me, but it was, it was interesting, actually, just go, go back and be reading the Yuan Shi, the, the dynastic history of the Yuan, and see the way in which they talked about the realm. They talk very differently than the people in the Ming Shi, um, the, the Ming dynastic history. Um, so it was a. It, it meant that I I forced myself to to put the Yuan and Ming together, and then I've decided that they're inseparable now. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to ever think of the Ming without without starting at the Yuan, in the Yuan dynasty. Um, the, this also maybe goes against the, the, the kind of self-professed ideology of the early Ming, which is, we threw out the Mongols, we, we're starting all over, we're going back to the Song and the Han, and, um, and it, none of that was true at all. They were carrying on the traditions that the Mongols had established. Zhu Yuanzhang, the founder of the Ming dynasty, had the faintest idea what the Song dynasty was about. Now, he had advisors who, who thought the Song Dynasty was pretty cool, so he went along with them. But he was a man just steeped in, in Mongol traditions, even though he wasn't a Mongol, and he was just a peasant kid who'd never been to Beijing or anything. But he grew up in a world in which the, in which the Chinese political imagination was very much shaped by the Mongols. And Kublai Khan is his hero. As far as Zhu Zhang is concerned, Kublai Khan is the man. No, Confucius is fine, and Mencius is fine, and Jushi is heard of, but you know, Kublai Khan, this is the great guy. And uh, now, when, when Zhu Zhang had to sell his dynasty to his people, of course he says, well, we got rid of those awful foreigners. It's a classic move on the part of any, any regime that's starting up that has absolutely no legitimacy other than having driven out foreigners. 
Um, so that works for him for him for a time. Um, but he doesn't he doesn't push it very hard. He's got Mongols in his own administration, and he's got Mongols in his army. So he's not he's not anti-Mongol, but he uses that as a way of saying, "Here's why I'm so special, and the Ming Dynasty is so special, and you'd all better obey me, or bad things will happen." And I think that was a really interesting decision and something that I wanted to ask you about anyway, um, to put the Yun and the Ming together, because this is not to say that you're explicitly conceptualizing this as a kind of comparative project, but having a single volume that treats the Yun context and the Ming context side by side really makes the Ming context read very differently than it would, I think, if you didn't have the Yun context in there as part of the same story. Yeah, well, I, I think there is some, there is not just, I'm not just saying that Yuan and the Ming are the same thing, that there is a contrast, right. and I get to work with that, and it, it gives me something to hold on to. So, in several of the chapters in the first half of the book, I start out with something in the Yuan, and then we go to something in the Ming, and it, there are differences and similarities that I think help us to see the Ming a little more completely. The second half of the book, the Yuan kind of disappears because I, that's when I get into Ming society and Ming culture and um, I, I have to leave the Yuan behind. Right. And that's uh, after I say one thing, which is I'm, I'm actually really pleasantly um, surprised to hear that the volumes that Mark Lewis did were originally designed as lectures. That actually makes a lot of sense because for listeners who haven't had a chance to work with these books or who haven't seen the series of which um, Tim's book, The Troubled Empires Apart, uh, they're not just great for undergrads, but they're really great for those of us who need to teach survey courses or who need to teach courses on Chinese history, who need a, a bit of a refresher um, on the Tang or the Han. Well, and, and I, I, I'm glad you say that because this we've, we've tried to incorporate the most recent research. So if, if you're not up on the Tang and you're not reading um, archaeological reports, um, Mark Lewis has, has pulled that all together for his volume. Um, there was no, uh, there was no particular design. Uh, we we thought chronology. We didn't want to do straight chronology. We wanted it to be thematic, but with a kind of vaguely chronological sequence to the themes. And uh, Mark had a lot to do with really setting the template because his volume on the chin and the hand was the first one. And my view was, leave my authors to do the to do what they want, and then after I see the manuscripts, we can tinker a bit. But it's interesting; we all kind of fell into this this vaguely chronological theme-oriented approach, so that rather than getting a, a, a lecture on the Wanli period, you're going to get um, bits and pieces having to do with po politics of one chapter and culture in another. And in a way that I hope. Um, gives the gives the the experience of living in the period more more uh, credit than than I, I mean it's odd you know we think of chronology as the most the most accurate transcription of a life but most people don't live their lives chronologically you live in the middle of your your family and the local market and um, and your job and what the neighbors think I mean that's how people live. And so we thought that working thematically was really um, what we wanted to do. Although most of the volumes kind of start out with a bit of early chronology, just trying to get you to get you to the events. Um, I'm afraid I, I defy that entirely in this volume because my opening chapter, well, my opening chapter is quite chronological, come it to is. think of it. Um, but it's chronology of a different sort. It is. And, and let's, um, let's actually, well, two questions emerge out of yeah. this. 
First, how did you, going back to the issue of structuring this book thematically, how did you decide on which themes you wanted to include and which order you wanted to include them? Well, I think perhaps the other authors in the series had a much more um, worked out vision for their volume than I did. And um, what I, uh, for, for some years, I was collecting what I thought would be great information and great ideas for this book and dumping them into files. And then um, once the, the fifth of the six volumes was in production and I hadn't written mine, I realized, oh dear, it's time to write. And so I, I, I let my material guide me. When I had great material on something, I thought, okay, I'll build a chapter around that. And so, for example, and this is partly, uh, I'm, I'm shaped here very much by the field in the last 15 years, the interest in material objects and the interest in which, uh, in, in how material objects are manufactured and circulated and then how are they consumed and appreciated and how connoisseurs uh, interact with material objects. This is very much a theme of the last 15 years in the field. So, so I found myself collecting interesting information about objects. And so I thought, okay, I've got to have a chapter on things. And uh, um, it was very much an organic process of, of putting the book together. I did not have a plan. I knew I would have to end with the fall of the Ming, but I had very special things that I wanted to address for the fall of the Ming. So in a sense, the fall of the Ming is also a themed chapter about the effect of the environment on Chinese civilization. Um, but otherwise, it was, it was kind of a an evolving, organic uh, structure. Mm -hmm. Well, the structure, one thing that does begin and end the book, um, and that runs all the way through, is this idea of dragons, the yes. importance of dragons. And so let's, um, let's start with that for a moment. And because, uh, for listeners and also um, for you, because one of the really helpful things about the book, I think, is the self-consciousness you bring to your choice of categories and to the way that you're actually... Um, conceptualizing the story. It's not just a bunch of fact chronologically lined up. That's um, most of what I'm going to try to draw our attention to because there's so much in the book and it's such a rich book that there's no way we're going to get to everything. So, um, But let's get so the book opens with the dragon sighting from 1292, and it closes with dragon images, right? One visible and one perhaps invisible or not quite visible. And you use dragons as a trope uh, both throughout the chat, the first chapter, which is called Dragon Spotting, and throughout the book um, to direct the reader to the centrality, in, in part, as one of many themes here, of weather and climate, um, to the story that you're telling. So for listeners who haven't yet um, had the chance to read the book and or who may not be familiar with this aspect of Chinese history, what do dragons have to do with weather? Well, a great deal. Um, the other night there was, there was a great storm blowing over my house, and if I had been Chinese in the Ming Dynasty, I could have sworn there was a dragon outside my bedroom window. And boy, I really had to tighten that window because he was ready to breathe his way all the way into the house. Um, the plug for the year of the dragon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is the year of the dragon. Um, dragons, yes. Why did I get hooked on dragons? Well, there are a couple of reasons. One is that um, the, the story that was most consuming my attention as I was writing the book is the story of the environment that we're all in right now. So it's very much a presentist concern. How does the environment 
and the effects of the environment on human society determine where we're going as a as a as a culture today. And um, and I I happen over the last few years, it seems that all my friends have become environmentalists, and so they've dragged me along, and I've I've learned a great deal about environmental issues. So I, the reason I wanted to inject the environment into the book is that it sort of goes to the end of the book, and I'm going to have to talk about the end before I can talk about the sure, beginning. Sure. The book, um, the dynasty collapses spectacularly in 1644, and the story is usually told as, well, several things. Uh, the Ming dynasty runs out of money. Uh, the court is beset by factionalism. The eunuchs take control. The emperor is an inefficient administrator and leader. Um, what else? The postal system collapses. The Manchus are swarming on the border. The military is, is incapable of responding to the threats along the border. Um, so... And, and on top of that, there's a kind of crisis of confidence, and the culture is in disarray, and morals have gone to the four winds. This is the way that the fall of the Ming is usually narrated. Um, and I got interested. I'll get back to I'll get back to this in a minute. But I become interested in the 1990s in knowing how much things cost. Very simple kind of problem. It was supposed to be in the Confusions of Pleasure, the book I published at the end of the 90s on the Ming Dynasty. But I didn't put anything about prices in because I couldn't, I didn't have enough data to do anything. So I've been collecting prices. And the most fascinating price data I've got falls between roughly 1630 and 1650, when the entire price structure goes to hell. And so I became interested in trying to figure out, okay, why, why did this happen? And does this explain why the Ming fell? Was it in fact the collapse of the economy, not the collapse of the military, the collapse of, of moral value, or the collapse of political capacity, but just the collapse of the economy? Um, and uh, it struck me as I started looking deeper that it was profoundly environmental. Droughts, famines, pestilences... Uh, plagues of locusts. It was the, the, the period of the 1630s, 1640s was absolutely dreadful in environmental terms. And as I read about this data, was collecting this data on environmental catastrophe, I discovered there was another category that writers in the Ming Dynasty included in their lists of famines and floods and locusts and lightning storms, and that was dragon sightings. And I had previously, I'd, I'd looked at the section of the Ming dynastic history on disasters, and the, the section on dragons, I thought, well, you know, what am I going to do with that, dragons? And then I thought, wait a minute, stop. That, to a, to a, somebody in the Ming dynasty, a sighting of a dragon was just as important as the flooding of the Yellow River. These were phenomena in the natural world that were having often a devastating impact on the way in which people live their lives. So I started to realize, well, I can count up all the floods and famines that I want, but I've also got to count the dragons, because the Ming people were counting the dragons. And um, that then led me to thinking about dragons. Um, clearly for Ming people, dragons had some kind of an environmental significance. 
because dragons manifest themselves out in the environment. They're usually up in the sky. They're sometimes down in the water. Um, and when a dragon comes, it usually causes a lot of damage. So um, I, 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 I don't want to sort of narrow this and say, well, the dragon was, uh, was a kind of um, metaphor for environmental pressure. Um, because to many people, dragons weren't metaphors. They saw them, and we see them too. But we call them twisters, or we call them tidal waves, or we have other names for dragons. They call them dragons. So I thought, okay, let's 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 lead with let's open the book and close the book with dragons, because the dragons tell the story I want. They tell the story of environmental stress. Um, the Yuan Dynasty begins actually. Kublai moves into China under some environmental stress, and then he's, he has a kind of three-decade holiday where the environmental conditions are not terrible, and then they, they start getting bad again. So I thought, let's look at dragon sightings in relationship to these larger environmental stresses. But dragons allow something else, and that is to get the reader to think about how people at that time thought about the world in which they lived. And rather than assume, I mean, if you'd like me to go on record and say I don't think dragons exist, I'm happy to do that. Oh, you but, can, whatever you want to do. I'm not <laughs> but, but, um, to get the readers, to puzzle the reader in the opening chapter with dragon sightings is to ask the reader to suspend his and her ways of organizing their understanding of the past and, and say, oh, these people thought there were dragons. And this is, and in a sense, I was running a risk here because dragons are about the corniest Chinese thing you could possibly want to put on. I mean, the idea of putting a dragon on the cover of the book was, was initially deeply upsetting to me. But, you know, we've got this nice, uh, we've got a nice uh, terracotta dragon, dragon tiles on the front of the cover. <laughs> um, but so, so dragons are, are very corny. Um, but they've only become corny because the last official sighting of a dragon in the Chinese historical record is in 1905. Mm -hmm. So Chinese have only been a century without dragons. And of course, dragons have become these you know, silly paper things that people dress up in and, and put on their walls because dragons don't mean anything anymore. They become an empty symbol. But back in the Ming Dynasty, these, these symbols weren't empty at all. They were symbols, too, because you knew that if dragons were messing up the world, you knew that the emperor was not far away, because the emperor's symbol is the dragon. And if dragons are coming, the dragons are either reminding the emperor that he's being a bad boy, or he's reminding the people that their emperor is trying to do something, and they're not doing what the emperor wants. So uh, a dragon is a kind of two, it, it can swing two ways. It can be a kind of condemnation of the emperor, but it can also be a warning to the people that they have failed in some way to meet the what heaven expects of them and the emperor. Um, so that's why I decided that dragons should, should be the, the lead in the story. I actually really like that aspect of the way you treated it, that you're not coming out and saying dragons were a metaphor for X. You're not sort of um, demanding or even leading the reader 
to think about dragons mm. as, you know, to, in terms of ask, well, what were they really? You're well, just putting it out there. In fact, one, saw of, one of my students in my, in my China in the World course this year sort of slightly flippantly said, so do you really think there are dragons? And I thought, well, good. If he's even puzzled enough to raise the question, it means he's puzzled. And that means uh, I might have done something that works. Um, yeah, yeah exactly. I think that worked really well. And also, um, back to or sticking with this idea of dragons, mm. one of the other things that you do in this chapter, um, I don't know if this is the first time in the book, but it's certainly one of the most striking early times, um, is something that also recurs throughout the book. And going back to the, my initial comment about comparison, um, one of the things that the book does repeatedly is use some aspect of what's going on in the Yuan or the Ming um, to contrast with something that's going on at roughly the same time in Europe and yes. kind of use them to mutually inform each other. Yes. So, um, for example, in this chapter, you talk about uh, sort of Edward Topsell on dragons mm -hmm. to sort of to make this story have a more global resonance. Can you talk a little bit about this comparative sure. approach and sure. what it brings to the work? A couple of things that I'll mention. First of all, I, I, I've, I've been in, interested in global history for a long time, and the previous book, Vermeer's Hat, is very much trying to situate China in a global context. And I didn't... I didn't want to drop that out in this book. There's a tendency in China textbooks to sort of draw a curtain around China and say, this book is about all, everything that's inside the curtain and we're going to ignore what's outside. So I wanted to stay, keep China in play with the rest of the world. I do it less in the book than I would have liked to, um, partly because I think readers who are, who are maybe coming to China for the first time, actually want to know what's going on in China. So I, I don't want to overwhelm them with connections to the outside. The reason why I brought in European knowledge about dragons was a little different, and that's because of uh, the kind of incommensurability between how we think of dragons today and how Chinese think of dragons in the Ming Dynasty. And because we, speaking as non-Chinese, and Chinese have very different traditions. Europeans in the 16th century were pretty much giving up on dragons. And although there were attempts in the 17th century to say, no, there's still dragons there and we can find them and let me tell you where to go to find them, dragon lore is pretty much fading out in the Ming Dynasty in Europe. And that, that posed a potential problem for me because the one thing I didn't want is have the Chinese believing in dragons, oh, isn't that silly, and the Europeans finally deciding, no, dragons aren't real, oh, isn't that enlightened. I didn't want to do that. I mean, that would have been a, a, a cheap trick that would have found the people of the men to be uh, less somehow than their European counterparts. And so, to my uh, pleasure, as I, I was digging around in the writings of Ming writers, I found some Ming writers starting to say, I don't know about dragons. We have real category problem. Are they, are they yang or are they yin? Are they water or are they fire? And they were struggling over where to put dragons in categories. And you only struggle over this issue when something is brand new and you don't know what to do with it, or when something is 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 losing the position it used to have in your cosmology, and I, so dragons were were starting to slide in the Ming Dynasty in terms of what Ming intellectual, how Ming intellectuals were trying to understand the world. So it was very easy then to take the doubts of Ming intellectuals and put them beside the doubts of Elizabethan intellectuals. 
they were in slightly different positions in terms of how they were doubting. doubting. They were using different kinds of logic. But it meant that, um, that in a sense, there is a, there is a global history of dragons and everybody's in on that history. Another also, um, sort of to put a final point on this chapter, another aspect in which uh, very explicitly this kind of comparative approach informs the methodology in, I think, a really pleasantly self-conscious way is in the way you choose to translate one of the terms for one of the most important sources that you are bringing to bear in here, which is BG, right? Ah. And you translate this for us as commonplace book and, yes. and, and you know, make clear yes. that this is a choice. Um, can you talk about that choice? And- yeah. That, that, that's a, it, it was a bit of a hard choice to make because a commonplace book is tends to be a, a journal in which in which uh, I'll use the English example in which literate English men and women wrote down things that they heard or copied out passages from books. So it tends to be much more a kind of scrapbook of knowledge rather than a place where a lot of reflection, reflection is done. Some commonplace book authors do that. Um, the BG tends to be less this kind of copying out of, of prior texts, although you get that in some BG, and more the, just kind of the reflections of somebody, short reflections on this, that, and the other thing. Um, and I decided to line them up, the one with the other. Um, and by doing that, um, it was a bit of a forced... Uh, a forced alignment between the two because they they are different kind of genres. And what I wanted to do was to just say people in 1600 in Elizabethan England were keeping certain kinds of records for their own purposes and sometimes to publish later on. And people in Beijing in 1600 were keeping notes to themselves and sometimes to publish them later on, that they're engaging in a similar kind of activity. The genres are a little bit different. Commonplace book and BG um, don't don't line up perfectly. But I wanted the reader to uh, think, not to worry about that, but to realize, okay, they're doing things one way there and the other way there, but they're both doing things that belong into a similar category. So this is like me trying to, me trying to create a category where both the the essayists of the Ming Dynasty and the note takers of Elizabethan England are in fact involved in roughly the same sort of enterprise. Great, thank you. Um, okay, so moving on from dragons to scale, um, which is a nice, I think, play on words. Um, the the next chapter opens with an. You know account. what? Did you realize that? I did never realize that. <laughs> so when I was reading this, I was like, oh. oh I, should it, no, I should have called it scales. Scales. <laughs> Got it. Isn't that? <laughs> I kind of thought you were going with the dragon. Oh, you credit me with far too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, in scale. Um, yes. So this opens with an account of Marco Polo and goes on to map out the physical and the human um, bounds or boundaries of the mm. Yan and Ming, and it talks about geography and population and modes of administration. Now, you talk at length in this chapter, and we'll see him again, so I won't talk too much about him, but you can feel free to, um, about Kublai Khan um, and his project of unification. Now, one of the components of this project that was really interesting to read about um, gets at another one of the major sources for um, that you say that you used in the book, which is really fascinating um, to hear more about, I think. Um, and that's, he compiles a kind of gazetteer. It's not a local gazetteer, it's a national gazetteer. Mm-hmm. And this is actually the first of its kind. 
um, to aspire to and achieve that kind of scope. And then the Ming founder follows with his own unification gazetteer. Um, since gazetteers of various sorts are such an important source base for the book and seem to be such an important part of what's informing how you're thinking about this, um, can you talk about how gazetteers actually informed your research in this process and anything you want to say about gazetteers? Okay, well, gazetteers are, are being produced uh, at the local level as kind of local histories, local collections of information of all sorts, administrative, literary, cultural, uh, sometimes legal, and these materials are supposed to be published rough, roughly once every 60 years. Um, I find gazetteers tremendously useful. The, 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 uh, the difficulty with gazetteers is that they tend to be produced under official auspices, or at least there's kind of an official umbrella hanging over the gazetteer, which means that you're not necessarily cutting right down to the way in which people are living their lives. Often a gazetteer will be at pains to show that the local area is really uh, conforming to whatever it thinks it should conform to administrative rules or moral standards or cultural customs or whatever. So there's a bit of that. But on the other hand, this is the consistently for the roughly 1,200 counties in Ming, China, less so for the Yuan, but in Ming, China, you've got locally produced collections of documents about these 1,200 these 1,200 areas. So it means that you can, if you've got a, a question in your mind, say, well, say dragons, I can just dip down into hundreds of gazetteers that are produced during the Ming Dynasty and look for dragon sightings. Uh, which which I did. I didn't look at every gazetteer of the Ming Dynasty because life is short, and I I don't know how many I ended up using. I ended up reading a lot of gazetteers, and in fact, it became a sort of game. Anytime I was in the Asian Library, whatever I was able to do, I would nonetheless go up to the gazetteer section, randomly pull off a gazetteer, and flip to the sections where I think I would find dragons. And, you know, one out of three times, maybe I'd, I'd find myself a dragon. It was great. Um, so the, these are these are sources that allow me to get down to the lives that people live. But they also they're not just local. And it, I mean, the the other important source for this book was was these BG these commonplace books. What what local the local educated elite were writing, um, and those are those are even better in terms of the. The, the details of how life is being lived at the local level. But they tend not to think about how is that local level relating to a kind of larger administrative or even cultural structure that connects local levels to the, to the state center. So um, gazetteers are kind of expected to do this because at the very least the gazetteer says, all right, we're in this county, we're in this prefecture, we're in this province, and there's a certain referencing back to administrative systems uh, through the gazetteer. That means the the author is conscious that he's writing for a national audience. I mean, in fact, he's writing for a local audience, and most people, most gazetteers are only read by local people. But there is also the sense, though, and, and this was in fact a practice. If you were in Beijing waiting for your next appointment, and you heard you were going to be sent to, I don't know, uh, let's say Chengdu in Sichuan. Well, you would skirt around as soon as you found out to your friends in Beijing who had libraries and say, anybody got the Chengdu Gazetteer? So I can, I can familiarize myself with the place that I'm going to. So, so they, they do, they take part in a kind of national 
a sort of long-distance national conversation, while at the same time they're, they're talking about what's going on at the local level. So perfect for me because I didn't want to just drone on about what's going on in Beijing, uh, but at the same time, I wanted to avoid the other problem of micro history is that you're down in the micro all the time and you, you it's a kind of strain to figure out how to take your local story back up to a national story. So that's why that worked. The um, Of gazetteers, there's gazetteers at all levels from the county or even below the county, but mostly from the county on up. Um, but the Yuan invented at the National Gazetteer. And so the Ming had a national gazetteer. And so the Qing had a national gazetteer. Now, the national gazetteers are the least useful. They, they summarize data to such a high level of aggregation that, that it's not a whole lot that a serious historian can do with them, except treat them as cultural objects. And that's how I try and treat them in this, in this second chapter. Because to me, the question was, well, there's never been a national gazetteer. Why would it take the Mongol occupation to produce a national gazetteer. What's going on there? And I like to think, I, I, in the 90s, um, I took a detour and became interested in collaboration during World War II between China and Japan. And I like to think that that sort of helps me understand the Mongol-Chinese relationship as well. So so here was a, this massive text that was produced, and it was called the Yitongzhi, the, the Unification Gazetteer. And I thought, that's worth thinking about, because the Mongols found themselves, as every military occupation does, trying to justify the fact that it's there and it's not going away. You need, uh, it's very hard, well, you can try to sort of take on the, the moral cloak of the people that you're occupying, but mostly those people don't want to give you that moral cloak. They, you, you don't want to spout off too much about righteousness and benevolence to Chinese after you've just come in and massacred them. Um, loyalty was is a useful one. The Manchus found loyalty tremendously useful. Um, I would venture to say loyalty wasn't such a huge concept in the Ming, but it was a big one in the Qing, because that's what the Qing wanted you to be, was loyal. And they folded that into the, 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 the Emperor Guan cult and so forth. But back in the Yuan Dynasty, the Yuan really didn't play the loyalty card, um, because they weren't particularly interested in loyalty. They were interested in submission not loyalty. They didn't really need loyalty because they had they had Persians and Italians who would come and administer the realm for them. They didn't need Chinese. They just needed the Chinese to pay their taxes. So they needed some way to say, it's good that we're here and you want to know it. And how, are, how is it good that we're here? It's because after all those centuries of the Jurchens taking one piece of China and the Kitans stealing a piece of China and the Shisha and the Dajiao kingdom and you used to have the Song and it became this little southern Song and China's been in chaos and we have come and we have reunified. We have given you what your culture wants because Chinese culture seems to like the idea of unity. And I perhaps downplay, I, I've been taken to task by one or two of my graduate students for over-arguing the 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 the, uh, the elevation of unity as a big issue in the Yuan Dynasty, and uh, uh, they've they've taken me to task by saying, "Well, if you look at the Spring and Autumn Annals, da 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 da," which is absolutely true, um, and I perhaps didn't phrase it quite right in the book, it, which is that unity, the idea of unifying the realm has been an appealing one for for a millennium and a half at least before the Mongols arrived. But it's the first time that it's actually used as a piece of, of proactive ideology. You go back and read 
Uh, and and I, did, I did this to sort of just as a reality check. Um, go back and read the beginning of the earlier dynastic histories. How does the dynastic founder explain to the people how, what a wonderful thing it is that he is doing? In no case does an emperor say, I've unified you guys. It's just not the way you speak when you are, when you are unifying China until the Mongols. And then once the Mongols do it, then the Ming do it in a big way. This is Zhuyan Zhang's big deal in the, in the late 1360s is saying, unification, I've achieved it. Because he doesn't know any better. Because the only thing he knows, the only ideology that he breathes, he lives and breathes, is Yuan ideology. And Yuan ideology is about unification. It's not about Confucian morality. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, thank you for that. And it's also a nice plug for the UBC Chinese History Graduate Program. We've got some very thoughtful, um, very engaged yes. Chinese history grad students. Yes, here. they make us work. <laughs> <laughs> well, the sort of our, you know, going from this to the next chapter, um, uh, and using gazette, we can also use gazetteers to kind of take us there because the next chapter, the nine sloughs, and thank you very much for explaining how that's pronounced for those of us. It's like plows or cows, I think you said, um, who don't know how to pronounce that, but I was one of them. And of course, my first thought was, oh, it's like the office. Slough, right? That's how I think of it. Oh, of course. So that's another. For the next edition, it's like the office, um, BBC version. Ah, uh, well, see, Carly, you're a younger generation. <laughs> I don't watch the office. <laughs> Oh, it comes down to TV for me. Yeah. Um, but okay, so this chapter actually does something very bold. Um, you're really offering us a, com a re periodization. Yes. Uh, and here. I was going to lead with this chapter, and I thought, no. Uh, mm -hmm. let, let's coax the reader into the book and then give them. So this is. Can you so you're structuring the period this period or periods according to what you're calling nine sloughs? Can you introduce that and explain that for our listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book? Because it's like I said, very bold. Yes, I collected environmental data starting around 1260 and going to 1644, and it was the sort of things I was talking about earlier. Not dragon sightings is one of them, but floods, droughts temperature changes, snow up season, all of those sorts of things, mostly from the two dynastic histories, although um, I, I supplemented that with some, with uh, prefectural gazetteers largely rather than county gazetteers. Because it seemed to me that the environment has is something that we are extremely conscious of today because of the environmental change that we are experiencing. And yet every society is always living within the environment. And the environment is not a stable system. The environment is a complex system that is subject to changes, some of which are induced by humans and others of which are induced by all kinds of physical processes like the way in which the sun's rays hits the earth or, or whether tectonic plates are moving and causing lava to, lava to spout out uh, clouds that, that, that fill the atmosphere. So it's... The more and, and, and it was it was it was watching prices fluctuate over the period of the Ming Dynasty that made me think there might be some other pattern here. It's not just that rice gets expensive and then it doesn't. There's got to be. I mean, this is a, this is such a large agricultural economy that if the price of grain 
fluctuates significantly, I have to look for patterns. And it can't just be because the price of grain fluctuates. Something has to be causing this. And so that's what I tried to build back out to a kind of environmental model. And I, I don't think I'm being determinist in any way. I'm just saying there's a frame here. One year, the, the, the weather is warm and moist. Great grain production. Another year, it's cold. It falls five degrees. There is no rain. The harvest is a disaster. Look for the patterns. And so I, I, I found what I call sloughs. And I, I didn't know what to call this. This is, this is when the weather gets bad. I call it a slough. And I actually took the term from John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress because he talks about the slough of despond. So that when, when things are going bad and you become you lose your faith, you become despondent, and you wander in the, this mire. The, the slough of despond is supposed to be a valley full of muck and you're trying to walk through the slough of despond, and it's not going well. So I thought, oh, slough works pretty well. I also needed a word that wasn't, wasn't already being used for something. And so I thought of depression, but no, we think of depression in terms of, of economic depression. Uh, downturn, I don't know. I, and, and for some reason I thought slough. And I guess I needed an, a word for something that hasn't been conceptualized this way before. That is... That is, th this pattern of going from reasonably conditions that are reasonably conducive to agriculture to conditions that aren't. And watching then how that echoes not just into the economy, which is going to it very directly, but also into other zones as well. <clears throat> and um, the fact that temperatures begin to uh, start to slide in the year after Kublai wins the uh, Kuroltai election in 1260 to become the great Khan, um, has got to be significant to his deepening strategy to move towards China, I think. The fact that it, there's a further fall of temperatures in 1271, at the end of which he declares that he's moving his capital down to Beijing. You know, th These are all significant. It, it was fascinating to me how much um, political events seem to be so closely tied with environmental change. Um, probably, the, other than the collapse of the dynasty, the, the saddest story is the story of the Jingtai Emperor. It comes to his, his half-brother is captured by the Mongols in 1449. There's a constitutional crisis, um, and so they bring in Jingtai in 1450. Eventually, his brother... The Mongols give him up as a hostage. The brother comes back. Nobody, or nobody knows what to do with him. They put him under a kind of house arrest, and he eventually overthrows Jingtai um, six years later. Jingtai ruled during the, 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 the consecutively the seven worst years of the Yuan and Ming dynasties. Just impossible conditions. So the poor guy, no wonder he's overthrown. And we think of the overthrow as, as a combination of Jingtai was, was ineffective, and there were problems of, you know, the, 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 the Yuchen's concepts of loyalty and um, you know, a, a kind of a moral cultural crisis tied up with the incident that, that got the previous emperor um, captured out on the steppe. Nothing to do with it at all. Well, something to do with it, of course. But um, Jingtai was fated to rule during the six worst years of the 15th century. 
So, you know, it's not surprising he got overthrown. It's not surprising that, that the, 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 uh, the administration, enough of the administration shrugged when, um, when he was overthrown because it had been a ter- terrible time. So, so, I've, so, so I create this kind of wave of, of, of nine downturns in the Yuan Ming economy, three in the Yuan dynasty and six in the Ming dynasty. And once we've got those in our sight, it's not that they answer all questions, but it's, it's um, if you don't know what the environmental conditions are like at any particular point in history, you're not going to see the whole picture. And I wanted that to be brought into the story. In fact, I would like, um, it's, I did it rather unscientifically. That is, you know, I wrote down on a piece of paper all the data I could find. Uh, I didn't even really, I put it into an Excel file, but it's, you know, this is not hugely scientific stuff. And I think it would be wonderful if people with the patience for this sort of thing tried to generate um, a kind of an environmental history. I think you could do it for the last 2,000 years of Chinese history. Um, as in, I mean, we have, we have a much more sophisticated environmental history for Europe, but only going back to about 1500. And then before that, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty iffy business. Um, the, the challenge is to connect the the um, scientific data, like glacier sampling and 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 and, and uh, pollen sampling and all those sorts of things, mm-hmm. with uh, the written historical record, and the Chinese are pretty good at keeping a written historical record. So, um, so there's much more that I think that could be done to open up environmental history as a, not just for Chinese history but for global history. And I know there's people working on this and I'm I'm a I'm not, a, I'm not an environmental historian and I, I don't know how to do this stuff in any sort of sophisticated way. But it seemed to me that it, it doesn't take much sophistication to get the broad outline. But it, it also at the same time poses really interesting methodological challenges because the for example even in this chapter I mean, it opens with another really fascinating account of dragons and this time in Hainan in 1458 and you go on to list, to sort of get us into this idea and prepare us for this idea of the nine sloughs mm-hmm. by listing um, just tons of natural disasters yeah. that happen. Well, Hainan is just sitting there right in the way of every typhoon that wants to hit China. So so right. Hainan has had more than its share. That's right. And, yeah. and these disasters include um, droughts and famines and these the kinds of events that we can more readily yes. perhaps translate into the kind of thing that accords with uh, something that matches up with contemporary scientific data. But right. it also includes pig, a pig birthing an elephant, that's sort of <laughs> a cat with bat wings landing. And so that's one of the challenges, right, is yeah. how do you make these two kinds of um, knowledge speak to each other and, right. and you know, buttress each other. So that's also really, really interesting methodologically. Yes, well, it, it, it's like doing a, 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 if you were to do an interview today and you were to ask a, uh, what would be a good example? Um, well, I, I don't need to give a contemporary example because I can go back to my own. I, I'm, let's say I'm speaking to somebody from Hainan in the Ming Dynasty, mm-hmm. and he's going to tell me about the tornadoes, but he's going to tell me about the cat with bat wings too. And I, right. I have to listen to him. I have to. I can't just say, okay, I've got my categories, thank you very much. Cats with bat wings have no place in this history. And of course they have a place in the history. And, and also not just as colorful cultural comment. They, they, they're part of the way in which people expressed their living in the world at that time. Yeah. And 
another thing, and we I don't want to keep you for too long, so I'm going to start um, no, I'm, skipping we, some we, of this. We can go as long as we can bore the listener. Okay, excellent. <laughs> um, another thing that's really notable that I'll just mention for our listeners is that you also talk in this chapter, speaking of sources, about paintings mm -hmm. um, and, the, and using paintings as a way to to learn about weather patterns yes. and history, which is really interesting as well. Well, it, it has it, potential it, broad, you know, resonance. It, it was it was a, a a bit of a stretch, I have to admit. But you know, we have these um, when when the the little ice age um, hits Europe in the 16th century, we have this very immediate effect of, in the case of Holland, um, the canals freezing over and people going skating, and they hadn't skated before, and so the painters, of course, thought, "Wow, this is wonderful!" And so all the painters went out and painted. Ice scenes, and so you've got this wonderful. It's it's a, a delightfully immediate for, uh, historical document about how people are reacting to the weather. So I thought, why not try this for Chinese history? Now there are any number of good art historical reasons why I shouldn't be doing this, um, and that being that the snow is a trope within Chinese art history long before the Yuan and Ming Dynasty ever came along, and I should you know, have to take that into account. On the other hand, I just start collecting references to snow paintings. I couldn't do it for the Yuan, but I could do it for the Ming Dynasty. And lo and behold, they tended to cluster around the times when the temperatures fell in China. And um, which is also, I guess I'm, I'm making a bit of an argument against a formalistic analysis of Chinese art, as much as to say, when you get out your paper and your brush and you start painting something and there's three feet of snow outside, you might paint the snow outside. I mean, you might not. You might want to paint peonies or something, but you might want to paint the snow outside. So it's, I guess what I was doing there is just reminding myself as much as anybody else that Chinese painting isn't all, um, doesn't work in a kind of self-contained aesthetic sphere where everybody does what everybody else does, that it's actually impinged upon by the real world. Mm -hmm. And so I include a couple of these paintings in the book just to just to just to annoy art historians. <laughs> and it really got me thinking too. So I, I really like that. So the book goes on um, to talk so there's a chapter um, that introduces and compares the styles and patterns of leadership for um, Yuan leaders and Ming leaders mm -hmm. and talks a lot about um, Kublai and Zhu Yuanzhang and also in that chapter and I won't um, spend too much time on this because I want to get to beliefs and things and money um, but you also it's a really nice parallel with the previous chapter because there's also a series of crises here and they're not weather crises necessarily but they are crises in rulership that right. are transformative so that's a really nice kind of parallel to, to move to. And then we move to um, a discussion of economy and ecology um, and a chapter that talks about um, many, many things, but including merchants and travel and mm. the importance of the Grand Canal for uh, transporting goods and monetization of the economy and um, all kinds of stuff like this. So for um, listeners who may not be familiar with this period in Chinese history, right, um, one of the things that's really striking about this chapter is your connection between um, the story of the monetization of the economy and this other story, which we don't often get in uh, works about, and certainly not um, books that are aspiring to be a kind of, to function as a kind of textbook. 
Ming history, the story about deforestation and mm. um, the sort of decline in habitats for wild animals like tigers. So, can you talk? A yeah, it's it's very striking in the 16th century. I mean, we have we have this. Uh, well, maybe I'll step back and just say one thing first, which is that when I wrote my book about the Ming Dynasty, Confusions of Pleasure, it was all about these issues of, of, of the economy. And so I didn't want to spend too much time on the book. I wanted to keep that down to a chapter because I've talked about it elsewhere. Um, but in the course of talking, of linking up the growth of the commercial economy in the 16th century, which was rapid, which was huge, um, huge both at the level of production and at the level of consumption, huge in terms of how, uh, how transportation networks are able to carry the goods and distribute them and get them to buyers. I mean, there was, it, it was a, a kind of an explosion of the economy that was going on. I wanted to put that back in relationship to the environmental um, issue. But this is environmental issue in, in the very small scale, sort of local scale. That is, as people uh, burn wood as fuel to produce, say, porcelain, where are they getting the wood from? What's the impact of all of that burning on the state of forests in China? Um, and as people, and well, and as, say, commercial agriculture becomes more productive and people encroach more and more into non-agricultural um, non land in order to expand their production, what happens to the animals that live in that habitat? So I choose trees and tigers as the two, as the two losers in this story. And, uh, and both, it's striking, the 16th century is a, is, a, is a tough turning point for both of those, for both of those species. Um, we don't have very good uh, forest histories for China. Going in, in any kind of deed, I mean, um, uh, Nick Mangus's volume in Science and Civilization gives us a gives us something to start with. Um, but to go down to the local level, you want to uh, the impact on forests is a little hard to to track. And so I did it because I found this amazing catalog of ancient trees that somebody had compiled in the 17th century in which he points out where the last ancient trees are and how the forests around them have disappeared. And so that gave me a kind of insight into the deforestation. I mean, it's generally agreed by the 17th century, China is pretty much stripped of its forest cover. And it's the 16th century that nails it, that just makes uh, the consumption of wood just, just makes that um, China's fate until, until very recently with, with the reforestation projects. Um, and in the case of tigers, well, um, uh, Bob Marx has already used the disappearance of tigers as a way to talk about the commercialization of the South China economy in the Qing dynasty. So, so I'm not. This is nothing new. But, uh, but I thought I'd use them because in in my earlier work on Buddhist monasteries in Hangzhou, I'd run into tiger stories, and I never knew what to do with the tiger stories. And so this gave me a way to use my tiger stories, which is, um, which is that. Tigers are being are being pacified by Buddhist masters. That is, the Buddhist ma tigers are. There are we have several stories from the late Ming of tigers harassing a local population. A Buddhist master will go in and he'll preach the Dharma, and the, and the tiger will be a good tiger and stop eating people. Or you're actually usually the Buddhist master is saying, you know, that's that's tigers' nature. You've got to let them eat. But uh, it's happening at a point at which tigers are no longer a threat because only then. Only then can you tell the story about how tigers are listening to the Buddhist Dharma. 
because uh, there aren't any more tigers that are, or the, the last tigers are disappearing from China's ecosystem. Um, and in fact, uh, possibly the last tiger, the last wild tiger was poached just a couple of years ago. It's, um, so, so there's a species that cannot live in in harmony with Chinese civilization, and and the Ming is is where the tiger gets nailed. You just raised the issue of Buddhism for us, and so I'm going to sort of move to another question, um, which represents what seems to me to be an important methodological decision on your part, or an important conceptual decision. Um, in the chapter on beliefs, um, you are very explicit in that you've chosen to talk about um, Buddhism and Taoism and Confucianism and their role um, in society and the sort of centrality of this to your story, not as an issue of religion um, or philosophy, but as in terms of belief. I'm glad you noticed, <laughs> because I was facing the... I felt I had to talk about... There had to be a section on, you know, thought during the Yuan and Ming Dynasty. Mm -hmm. And the tendency, I find, is that when you start thinking about Chinese thought, you get all these categories bumping up at you and demanding your attention, like Confucianism and Taoism and Buddhism, and then you have to say what they think. And, and I thought, um, well, that's probably true for a small handful of, of intellectuals. But for most people, these are beliefs that show what they believed shaped their lives in a way that 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 absorbed Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism, and anything else that was was going around. So I wanted to I wanted to see, and so I called it. I, it was originally going. To, the chapter was going to be called Thought, and then I thought, no, it's not about thought. It's about it's about what people believe, the way that they, the way they think the world makes sense. And so that includes hell and all the awful things that will happen to you if you if you if you go to hell. It also includes whether you think the Earth is flat or round. Um, it includes any number of things, much of which, and this is even true today. I mean, much of much of the convictions we hold are based on beliefs that are that that come out of a whole range of influences. Very little of which have to do with careful philosophical analysis. Um, and so, I wanted I wanted to try and capture the way in which people thought in the Ming Dynasty without. Having, I mean, I, I give readers. I, I hope I give readers enough of a sense that there is this thing. That there's a kind of body of ideas and doctrines called Confucianism, and that if you're a Buddhist, you believe in certain things. But, but, but I wanted to keep it as beliefs rather than as as thought. And one of the things that that lets you do, as you just mentioned, is to take this story about. Um, Buddhism and Confucianism and Taoism and put it um, into the same story as maps and cartography. Right? Right. And the um, the relationship and the changing relationship between cartography and cosmology and changing ways of conceptualizing the earth as a mappable space is sort of where that chapter leads mm. us. And what the people who are a group of people who start to become more and more central to the story are missionaries, yes. Jesuits. And so this moves us into actually the next kind of set of issues, um, which I think is really interesting for those of us who are interested in the craft and methodology of history. So repeatedly, um, you've been sharing with us the importance of coming across fascinating sources and how that actually changes your story or shapes the story. So this story about um, 
the catalog of trees, for example. Mm. Another one of the sources that actually um, is extraordinarily striking in the next chapter when you talk about things and the business of things um, is this ha- household inventory, right? So you talk about household inventory in particular, the inventory of a Jesuit compound in Nanjing that was confiscated in 1617. Mm-hmm. So can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Well, I, I um, um, Years ago, Ad Duding and, at Leuven produced this uh, wonderful study of the documents surrounding the suppression of Christianity in Nanjing in 1616. And one of the documents he included in, that, uh, in his dissertation is this inventory of what was in the Jesuit house. And I'd never known what to do with it until I wrote this chapter. And I thought, well... We're being given a house. Now, it's not going to be a typical house because it's Jesuits in it, so it doesn't have women in it. Well, I don't know if there were any sort of cleaners and cooks, but basically this is not, this is a, it's a gendered space for males, for a whole bunch of males jammed together in one house. So who knows whether it doesn't, it's not, it's not necessarily typical, but it's a house in which you have to have things like pots and pans and, and beds and chairs and, and, um, I thought, oh, this gives me a sense of the things that people surround them. I mean, my, my original interest in things was in high cultural things, expensive porcelains and sculptures and so forth. Mm-hmm. But I thought, well, they're on a gradient all the way down to bedpans, you know, and, and let's see all the things that you have in a Ming house. Um, Wuren Shu, who's a Ming historian in Taiwan, was very helpful here because he has a book on daily life in the Ming dynasty. And he was able to track down some some inventories of late 16th century houses that were drawn up because the family was splitting. So they were splitting family assets. These are probably all from Huizhou. And uh, so that then gave me some more household inventories that I was able to work with. And that then gave me a sense of who, you know, who, who owned what kind of stuff in the Ming Dynasty. And then that leads to questions of, well, where did they get it? How much did they cost? Um, what was the what relationship did people have to things? And I think by the end of the Ming Dynasty, um, the people of China have more things around them than they did in the Tang Dynasty. And so, what? How does that explain their social life, their social relations, the economic substrate to their social relations? Well, it's, it, it, it opened up all kinds of fascinating. Um, issues, but also on you know, how, how you conducted yourself in daily life. Did you sleep on the floor or a bed? Did you sit on the ground or on a chair? All, all these kinds of issues can get talked about. Yeah, and, and the chapter also moves from this discussion of the household objects to a broader discussion of connoisseurship. Like yes. You bring in um, uh, the diary of Lir Hua, right. right, as sort of being central to yes. allowing us to learn about porcelain and all kinds of things. Yeah. So can you talk about the importance of that diary and uh, you think about connoisseurship in this period? It's a fabulous diary. And uh, this is the uh, Wei Shui Shen Ji. Um, it goes from 1609 to 1616. Eight years. Uh, uh, the man is from Shaoxing. He's, uh, he's, he's on leave to care for his aging um, it's a diary in which he makes almost every day he makes an entry. On, sometimes it's about the weather, and in fact I use him in the weather chapter at one point because he describes the winter of 1616 very nicely. Um, he comments on all kinds of things. Um, this is almost like, this is, this, is, this is a huge other topic because one of the things, I was on leave last year, and I, one of the things I did while I was on leave is read through this diary and take extensive notes and and because I had this idea that 
um, as a as as, as somebody who likes to write for a broad public, this diary is going to be perfect because David Peeps, uh, Samuel Pepys has been given many biography on the strength of his wonderful diaries, and they are wonderful. Samuel Pepys's diaries are are to die for from the Chinese point of view. But on the other hand, um, this is a fabulous diary, and it shows this man living his life for eight years. And I still aspire to trying to write something, but I, 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 I'm baffled at the moment. I don't know how to. I don't yet know how to use the diary. Although I'm going to be giving a, a paper in two months in which I compare the early history of Chinese and European diaries and argue that the diary is 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 well established as a Chinese genre before the Europeans ever start keeping them. We have and and this is an interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here, but in, in Europe, the history of diaries is very much tied to the idea of the individual's ability to identify him or herself as a distinct individual and to separate his subjectivity out from those around him and, you know, the beginning of individualism in the Western tradition. Um, well, it may or may not be true, but I think it's utterly beside the point because you've got Chinese doing exactly the same thing um, in a very different cultural context that does not produce uh, an ideological program that says we are individuals, which is what happens in the West. I mean, maybe... Chinese and Europeans are just as individual or not as as, as you like. So um, the diary is, uh, I, I've dug up several other Ming diaries that are, are quite fascinating. And so I'm, I'm, in fact, what I'm doing at this very moment in the, for writing the paper is I'm comparing an English diary, a Lierhua with an English diary that overlaps with it. But the interesting thing about this diary is by Richard Cox. Richard Cox was outside Nagasaki while he was keeping his diary. So I've got an Englishman in Japan keeping a diary. I have Lierhua keeping his diary in, in uh, uh, outside Shanghai. And um, there's a story to tell, tell there, but I'm still working on how to make this story. I would read that book. You, I mean, that's just, you can okay. think about how the chapters begin, you know, parallel with you know, accounts from each one of them. Yeah. You know, it oh, you should write that Well, I, I've, I've, I've sort of been playing with it, but it, it, it isn't working out as neatly as I thought it would. There's going to be some struggle involved in making this, making this available, uh, or making this into into readable prose. Um, the interesting thing, though, is on the European side. There's a big literature on European diaries, early modern diaries. Not a single book I've been able to take out of the library knows about the Richard Cox diary. It's 700 printed pages. It was printed in the 1880s by the Hacklet Society. It's one of the biggest early modern English diaries that exists, and not a single English literary person seems to know about it. So that, in turn, leads to fascinating cultural questions. Why is an Englishman in Japan not a diarist, in the sense that Samuel Pepys in London is a diarist? And then why is why are either of them diarists when we've got Lierhua happily diarizing away before either man set pen to paper? Mm -hmm. That's great. That's wonderful. Um, thanks for thanks for sharing that with us. Okay, well, a, a peek of what I hope to do eventually, but <clears throat> not in the not in the coming year. But okay. I, I'm 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 muddling over this this problem. Well, and another, this sort of connection between what's happening in Europe and what's happening in China mm. also um, lets us speak a little bit to what's happening in the chapter that you write about, um, about the South China Sea, which, I mean, for listeners, begins with this 
amazing case of the silversmith Guan, um, who he is sort of well, who he is, what happens, and he defrauds the government out of like a thousand ounces of silver, and then he like develops a relationship with his jail warden that lets him like slip out during the day if he returns at night. But one night he doesn't return. He winds up at the end of the chapter in a ship and like the bottom of a ship, you know, but which is just uh, this is an incredible story. Um, so I, so I wanted to ask you about to speak a little to that. But you could. I want, also wanted to ask you to speak about this other story that comes out of this chapter, um, which is the story um, of the first Chinese book that makes it to Oxford, right? And you tell us about the first Chinese book that comes to Oxford, um, the sort of genesis of the Bodleian Library as a result, yeah. and this really fascinating map um, by John Selden. So well, okay. whatever part of that you want to talk about. Well, um, the, 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 the chapter on the... The South China Sea is really the cornerstone of the entire book. That that's that is the chapter in which I think I have the most important things to say, and it's about how do we, as China historians, deal with the fact that China is in the world, and um, I, I call it the South China Sea. I focus on the South China Sea because that's, of course, one of the one of the zones in which Chinese are busily active as merchants, as interpreters, as laborers, and this is where they interact with the Europeans. The, the story of the Jesuits in 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 Guangdong or in in Beijing it's a, it's an interesting story, but it's just a very small number of highly educated people. Europeans and Chinese were encountering each other in the thousands, but they were doing it in Manila, in Jakarta, uh, in, in along the coast of Vietnam, in Malacca. And there was this whole world economy, to use the Wallerstinian concept, a whole world economy emerges around the South China Sea. This is the biggest story of the 16th century, I think. And it, it's to me, it's where the story sort of has has most traction when it comes to trying to relate China to the world. I mean, the usual thing is you've got, you've got if, if you're teaching world history, for example, you do the week on China, and so you do the Ming Dynasty. But, but I wanted to see the Ming Dynasty as, as much, as so central to the world that it's impossible to think about the 16th, 17th century world without China being right there in your face as, as we're doing it. So um, while I can have a, a silversmith from the Yangtze Delta ending up in a ship in Macau and getting arrested, I can also have this book, and, and it's a it's a it's a it's, it's a rutter. It's a list of um, it's a list of navigation routes ending up, um, you know, going up the Thames in ending up in Oxford in 1604. This is and and and, and I, I I make a fuss about this in the well, not fuss, but I I want to emphasize in this, this in the book because. The Ming was so interrelated to the world in ways. I mean, in ways that we, I think, um, you know, sort of accidentally, but also intentionally, forget. We're somehow so swept up in the idea that that globalization is this is this new phase, and and that we've somehow entered in our own lifetimes. And it certainly is at a quantitative level very different, and I suppose qualitative. It's a very different kind of interaction as well. But you've got you've got all of this going on in the 16th, 17th centuries too. It's a, in some ways. I mean, there's the danger of saying, "Oh, well, it's just like today," and I don't want to do that. But 
Um, I like to think of, of the history of this period of the 16th and 17th centuries as, as a history you can enter from almost any place on the globe. And you enter and, you, and then you're in the same space. Once you've entered, you enter from China, you enter from London, you enter from Mexico. But as soon as you decide you're going to enter this, this kind of global history, I mean, you're all, we're, we're all there in the same big room together. And that, that's to me is, is what is so, uh, productive about the period and its contribution to world history. And that's what I get most excited about. And that's why I, 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 I could have put that chapter earlier in the book, but I thought, no, I want to, uh, I, I want the reader to come sort of fully informed about the Yuan and Ming dynasties before we actually get to the chapter in which we start talking about China and the world. And, uh, I mean, it's the subject of much of what I'm thinking about right now. One of those objects that I, I mention in the book, in fact, it's reproduced there, is the Selden map. This is a map of East Asia that ends up in the Bodleian Library. And uh, that's the book for which I just signed the contract yesterday. And uh, it's my next book. It's going to be, the book may be called Who Wrote the Selden Map? And, or who drew the Selden? I don't know what verb to use. Um, and it's it's a book that I'm I hope to finish in the next six months. And it's going to look at the East Asian world in the first half of the 17th century and the way in which knowledge about that world is reflected in maps. So going back, I I got very interested in maps when I was writing the things chapter and, and was talking about maps. And so this is going to be a way to use in something like Vermeer's fat. Instead of using Vermeer's, I'm going to use maps. And and I'm going to, uh, the Selden map in particular is going to be a kind of itinerary. And so I'm going to take the reader to every place on that map and we're going to see what's going on. It's an bizarre map. It's a, a map that if we didn't know it had been accessioned in the 17th century, I would have been ready to bet it was a fake, but it's not a fake. We've got the accession data is is totally safe. It's a map that makes no sense. And so the book is going to is going to build an argument for why the map does make sense and how we make sense of it. So why does the map make no sense for those who haven't had a chance to, to see the map? Or to because when you look at it from 21st century point of view, it appears to make sense. Mm -hmm. And people in the 17th century didn't see this part of the world, didn't have the same kind of visual matrix for this part of the world that we do today. And yet you look at the map and it looks like you see it and you know immediately, oh, it's a map of East Asia. I know that. That shouldn't happen. That recognition, there's something wrong with that recognition. So this book is going to be about suggesting why that's wrong, but why it and what was going on that somebody should have produced an image of East Asia that looks like the one we know today. It's, um, but I can't, I can't tell you the, uh, no, I no, can't we'll, tell you the we'll ending of the story. The, we'll wait to the story. That's actually, especially since we brought down the Ming at the beginning of the yes, conversation, yes, maybe that's a perfect place to wrap up. Is there, I, there's a ton of material in the book that we didn't actually have a chance to talk about. Is there anything um, that you'd like to mention as particularly important that we didn't have a chance to talk about for listeners who may not yet have had a chance to read the book? Um, no, I don't think there's anything I want to add because, um, yes, it's full of all kinds of details, but what, what I appreciate in our conversation is that you're, you're, you're catching the, the, the sort of the craft 
with which I put the book together because um, I think for most readers it'll be a bit buried. They won't. And, and as a writer, I don't like to sort of set my tools out on the table and say, okay, now I'm going to use a hammer and now I'm going to use a screwdriver. I like to use the hammer and screwdriver um, so that you almost don't know it's being done, but in ways that I leave a few hammer and screwdriver marks on the cabinet. So to try and you know, encourage the reader to think about how we tell the stories that we tell. Because, I yes, I'm telling the story of the Yuan and the Ming dynasty, and it's a story that belongs to the people of the Yuan and the people of the Ming. Oh, and I would just note that almost never do I speak about the Chinese. Right. I call them the people of the Ming. That's right. Um, and so for the, I, I, uh, the people of the Yuan and the people of the Ming had their story to tell, and, but we have a very different story to tell. We live in a very different age. We look back with a very different perspective. So... Um, I, I needed to find, I needed to respect the fact that I'm writing today and yet that they were writing then and I wanted to find a way to try and bring the, 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 the texture of their writing together with my own, with my own interests so that there's a sort of a point of meeting between their experience of their history and our looking back and trying to make sense of it. Well, I think it was exceptionally successful. So thank you so much for talking you're, with us. You're today. very kind. Thank you. It's been fun. I'm Carla Nappi, and you've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.